You are listening to the Curiosity Podcast, a podcast aimed at equipping future changemakers with the skills that they need to thrive. We discuss business frameworks, exponential technologies, mental health, and living the life that you want to lead. We release an episode every second Thursday and can be found at curiositypodcast.ca. Hi, and welcome back to the Curiosity Podcast. Today, we're with Rambert Nissan, and he is currently a managing partner at Oxford Energy, where he advises investors and developers in the renewable energy generation and storage space. At Oxford Energy, he has also worked in a role developing utility-scale solar projects and worked on the international commercial advisory and contractual services across the power project development spectrum. His previous roles also include the MD project developer for General Electric and the chief commercial officer at Energy Dome. Thank you so much for being here today. Is there anything else you would like to add to that introduction? Um, no, thank you so much, Christina. Uh, I think that's a fair summary. Of course, I'm, like I say to some people, I am much closer to my bus pass, to my student pass. So if I add anything, my question would be, how much time do you do you have? But I think for brevity, let's just leave it with what you just said, that, said, just said and go into the uh, discussion here. Perfect. Sounds good. So our first question kind of starts off when you were beginning your career, some more when you were a student in high school and university. So our kind of question is like, what were you like in high school and university? Were you very focused on like academics? Were you like always interested in the sustainability sector? And what kind of sparked you to go to university to study what you did? Yeah, so uh, like I said, right, I'm much closer to my bus pass to my, and to my student pass. So the word sustainability, I don't think had been invented in the, when did I go to uni? It was in the early 80s, I suppose. So even things like environmental impact assessments, which are routine today, they were new. They didn't exist when I was a university. When you ask me what was I like at high school and university, always interested in the outdoors, my teachers would probably call me rebellious. Um, I would never admit the same to my mum. What did I study at uni? After after high school, I did uh, civil engineering, um, but quickly decided that was not for me. I just wanted to travel the wider world and did a MBA in, in France. I went to university, by the way, in Holland, and I'm from Holland, that's where I went to high school, uh, did an MBA in France, and that really opened um, my eyes to the wider world. Back in the late 80s, the world was not flat. You know, if you go from Holland to the UK, it's far. To Canada, is very far. To New Zealand, is you might as well go to Mars. But I did those things back in the day, so I was always a little bit adventurous and on, on the outdoors. So um, the MBA was my pathway to the outdoors. Once you have an MBA, at least I was thinking at the time, the world is your oyster. And the world is very different today with internet, Facebook, and so on and so on. Everybody has access to everything much more readily. But anyway, that was my university degree. And then you use the word career. Um, Some people have a career, other people have a working life. And a career is when you plan your career from let's say day one to to your retirement or deep into your uh, working life is if you will a working life is much more haphazard 
my brother has a career he's planned his life and it works out very well for him i have a working life very interesting very varied and it's working out quite well for me but if i were to give a piece of advice i would suggest people have a career so that when you take a role or when you study that you say look how would this actually uh, serve my purpose in the medium or longer term does this get me to where i want to be uh, like i said i was rebellious and adventurous i was just looking at let's have some fun see what happens that's what i've done most of my life and i can work pretty well but you need to be a bit lucky and a little bit smart if that works for you that's a long answer to a short question christina but it gives a bit of a flavor as to where i come from that is that is very interesting and i'm really curious about like after university so maybe after either your engineering um or mba degree how did you transition to your first job and what was the process like for finding your first job and yeah. then how did you kind of transition throughout your career yeah. or working life to the current yeah. position you have yeah. Yeah, so no, that's fine. So I did uh, civil engineering uh, in my bachelor's. I decided that's not for me. So I did an MBA right after my bachelor's, which I wouldn't recommend. I would suggest that people have a bit of work experience before you do a master, certainly if it's an MBA, but it might be actually be valid for most master's degrees. I'm not sure that's necessarily the right thing to do one right after the other. Anyway, I did my master's in business in France um, and I wanted to see the wider world and this company asked me for an interview in London. I thought, well, that's cool. That's a free airfare to London. So I went to London uh, and interviewed with a company called um, Philip Brothers Commodity Trading. I didn't really know what it was, but it sounded really cool. And I did that. Um, I joined that company back in 87 and I traded sugar for five or six years uh, flying all over the world very exciting very exciting but at some point i got bored and i wanted to do something that was closer to my values if you if you want to call it that and they were always based on the outdoors i was a keen sailor i was a glider pilot and that is when just wind energy began emerging we're talking here um early 90s and i said well let's become a wind developer so i i segued into development of wind farms and that's what i did and i've been there ever since and it's a phenomenal industry super exciting i didn't you know i didn't get into it out of ideological reasons but always being interested in the outdoors it is nice to work in an industry that you feel good about. Of course, back in the day, I had no idea that it would take such a flight. It would be, get so big, so fast, and so irreversible. At the time, it was mostly hippies, you know, and now it is mainstream. Yeah. So it, it wasn't really planned, but it happened, and it happened for the right reasons. That's an interesting perspective, because like I kind of want to circle back to something you said at the beginning. It's like you versus your brother in terms of career or work life. So you said your brother had a more planned out like career and yeah. you kind of just went with your interests and things and what's interesting now in the landscape of like the current world is like there are so many jobs that are going to exist that have not yet been invented like the technology has not been created for that for example like you did not know wind farms would be a thing and they would blow up but you just did it out of interest so how would you recommend to someone let's say in high school and university trying to plan out their career in a logical way that perhaps like might not know all the career paths like what do you think is like the best way to optimize yeah. for enjoying your career 
and also like for having a wide range of career prospects. Yeah, hey, Christine, it's a very fair question. And um, and again, you know, I don't want to sound ageist here, but my two sons are in uni now and just starting their careers. And what I tell them, yes, of course, it needs to pay the bills, uh, but it doesn't. money doesn't need to be the be all and end all. I tell them to use their capabilities to the best of their ability do something that's societally meaningful and do something that you think you're good at and that you enjoy. And the last point I think is very important. Um, later on, when I was in GE leading teams, um, you have a diverse team. Some people are good at one thing. Some people are good at something else. Um, very few people are not good at anything. And uh, we have annual performance reviews. And in annual performance reviews, as a manager, you need to say, I think you're pretty good at this, but maybe you're not so good at that. And um, I think I stood out from any other managers there that I would then direct people to focus on the stuff that they're good at rather than trying to improve the stuff that you're not so good at. Because I think that's to do with natural aptitude. And if you work with natural aptitude, some people are good with talking, other people are good with numbers, then put them in roles where they use the talent that they have, the skills that they have, the thing that they enjoy, rather than try and get them to improve a skill set that they're not so good at. So when you look at career advice, um, or what do I want to do and how do I do it, do what you enjoy, because the only way you will be good at a job is if you do what you enjoy, and whether that is, um, on the sciencey side, on the artsy side, on the outdoors, on the indoors, back office, front office, you need to do what you enjoy. It's the only way that you will be good at what you do. That's that's my opinion and my experience. Yeah, that Did makes a lot of sense. Question? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So understanding what your natural aptitudes are, and then also what you enjoy, and then just finding skills and jobs that would like fit into those categories. And something interesting at G Capital, you led a power project development yeah. um, project across several countries. So this was including Latin America, the Middle East, North Africa, Turkey, Kazakhstan, Pakistan, yeah. and more. So yeah. I'm really curious about like how the process was like to implement these power project development um, across several different countries. So is it difficult to implement power project development in an industry that might not be standardized across several countries? Like, does each country have its own standard for developing these projects? Um, no. Um, no. And that actually is what I find fun in the, in the job of power project development. And um, when people would interview with me, when they want to join the team, they ask for a job description, I would show them a blank sheet of paper. There is no job description, it is common sense. And what I mean by that is if you think at what constitutes a power project, you need a means to generate the power, i.e. the technology. That could be solar farms, it could be gas turbine, it could be a wind turbine. Uh, so you get the technology, but the technology needs to sit on a piece of land. Uh, the technology needs to connect to the grid. You need to get a permit for the technology. You need to get uh, somebody to buy your power from you. You need a financier to finance it. So these basic building blocks, if you will, doesn't matter whether you build a project in the develop a project in the US or in uh, Holland or in Australia or in Pakistan. The basic building blocks are all exactly the same. Uh, 
how you go about these building blocks, they are completely different from country to country. Uh, some places have a very regulated regime, some places have a very uh, uh, irregulated, uh, deregulated regime, some places have no regime at all. And so within that, that space, if you will, you try to get that puzzle complete, you know which pieces you need, and you know, get on with it. And it was also quite interesting, is if you look at, for instance, a country like uh, Kenya, where I did a 100 megawatt wind farm, versus a country like, for argument's sake, the US, where I also did a bunch of wind and solar. In the US, if you develop a wind farm, you may be displacing another generation source off the grid, i.e. a gas-fired power turbine may need to turn down because I show up with my wind farm. The owner of the gas-fired power plant will not be happy with that because he gets less revenue. If you go to Kenya, on the other hand, um, there is a shortage of power, so the more power you bring, no matter how, wind, solar, coal, or, or gas, people will be very happy. So there is not much in terms of regulation in sub-Saharan Africa or structure, but the power is very welcome. But then the question becomes, how do I get my power from my wind farm to the end user, because there's no grid basically, or very uh, lacking. So that's one extreme versus the US is the other extreme. Um, I forgot your question now, but I, I hope this answers it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So it's like very different for each country. And something that's interesting is, so I come from like a software engineering perspective where like there's pros and cons to every like engineering, but like software engineering, you can iterate really quickly because there's not a lot of infrastructure needed. It's just kind of programming and you can deploy it. But where else on the energy side, you have to do a lot of legislative stuff. You have to build things. You have to yeah. bring things to different countries. So along with like the tailoring for each country, there's also like a bunch of testing you probably have to do. So how did you go about making sure that the process was very like iterative and as fast as possible for implementing these yeah. projects when there was so much legislative and like hardware yeah. work to do? Well, there is the, it, it's a good question and there's no simple answer for that, Christina. If you look at my time in GE, um, the, the quickest project where we signed an agreement to develop a project. And developing means getting a piece of real estate and getting the, the piece of land and getting the permits and the grid connection in place. So up to ready to build. So to get a project from, from nothing, an idea, a gleam in someone's eye to ready to build, the quickest I did was 18 months. The longest was 16 years. That's within the US which has got a pretty uniform system, but there could be objections, there could be technical problems, there could be market dynamics, there could be, it could be different every time. So uh, there, there is no straightforward answer to that. But yes, you know, like, if you look at the power project, um, a small power project, small-ish, would be 20 or 40 or 50 million dollars. A medium-sized one will be, 100 200 million dollars uh, a large one is a billion and a half so it stands to reason that there's many many years of studies and works and contracts and engineering that precedes someone taking the what we call the final investment decision to say yes let's spend a billion dollars and, and build this because you don't want to find out after you build it that your grid connection is not able of handling the power that you generate or that you can't get your fuel to site or whatever 
so yes it's a very long process ahead of ready to build and in fact one of the biggest obstacles that you see in many countries christina including in the us by the way is uh, uh, regulatory stability we don't mind what the rules are as long as they're going to be the same for the next five or ten or twenty years certainly from the moment that you start building until you decommission you need to operate within the same regime otherwise your cash flow will be undermined but also like i told you like to develop a project from an idea to ready to build takes years if during that process you change the rules they need to start all over again and developing a project will cost millions you know like before a spade goes in the ground you may spend 10 or 20 million dollars mm -hmm. that regulatory certainty is perhaps the biggest challenge the world over in developing power projects yeah and that's basically it's like a paradox because the world is in dire need of sustainable energy and this is like needed for us to be like secure but it's really difficult to develop other sources of like sustainable energy like yeah. creation and storage so apart from like making sure the legislations kind of stay the same over periods of time what else do you think can happen so we can iterate and innovate faster in terms of sustainability um it's a again it's a fair question what can we do quicker that like i said it's the it's the regulatory stability the other one is for uh, politicians who have the realism or the political courage to say that there is an external cost not only to do nothing the external cost to do nothing is global warming and the floods in pakistan that is the do nothing scenario right that's a cost we keep on burning coal then that's the cost the other external cost is coal and oil and gas are actually subsidized by central government much more than wind or solar but to to stop that subsidy is politically not very attractive and subsidy includes for instance uh treating miners who who get who get ill working in a mine from coal dust they get treated in hospitals at the cost of society but it's not calculated into the cost of the kilowatt hour that you generate firing coal it's what we call an external cost it's a cost that you don't see it's a societal cost but it is there so if there were to be a more fair mechanism that external costs are internalized then the uh, paradigm would change completely because then solar and wind combined with storage would rapidly be the so the, the lowest cost energy pretty much everywhere and the shift from thermal to renewable energy would accelerate even faster it's already irreversible there's no question but it would go much quicker so i think it is political courage uh, that is lacking uh, political realism political courage and if they combined with um regulatory stability create a more level playing field then it would even go faster but you know don't be mistaken right the um if you look at the power industry the world over virtually all new power that is being built at the moment is wind and solar when i say virtually all the majority let me put it that way so far more wind and far more solar is being built than anything else and why is that because it's the most competitive uh, source of energy that you can build at the moment
Mm -hmm, for sure. So in terms of innovation for both energy storage and also for generation, yeah. what are you most excited to see in terms of innovation for both of these fields? Because you have a good kind of understanding of both of these fields. So I'm curious, like what you're really excited to see in the future yeah. of these fields. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a that's a fair question. So when I first got in wind 25 or so years ago, I was super excited, right? Because, you know, it's really cool that you have a little turbine that runs around and just like a, like when you're a child that you can have a little light bulb from your bicycle but driven by wind. You know, now we can power whole towns and villages. That was very exciting. Um, electricity is so cheap now if you generate it with solar and wind that you don't necessarily know what to do with it. To store it is problematic because the standard storage today is either pump storage hydro, which is a hydro a dam with water behind it, a hydro facility that releases water to generate power. And when you want to get your power back, when you want to store power, you pump the water back up. That has been around for a very long time. And lithium ion, no different from what you have in your in your cell phone. So today, these are the two leading technologies. Lithium is problematic for all kinds of reasons. It's a dirty industry to mine it. You've got a waste a product that nobody knows what to do with at the end of its useful life. Uh, it's expensive. It is uh, geopolitically, it is problematic because it is not widely available and more available in some undesirable countries than, than others. Um, so lithium is a problem and pump storage is okay, but it takes a very, very long time to develop and a very long time to build. And if you go to Holland, you know, there is no pump storage because we're as flat as a pancake. So what is really exciting today is that there is a new class of energy storage technologies emerging, uh, mechanical storage, uh, thermal storage, where, um, for instance, when you, when you say mechanical, it could be um, it could be it could be to give you a good example. Actually, let me first go to the thermal. Um, if you store energy thermally, you basically one of the ways to do this. You have a solar uh, a field, but instead of making straight electricity, these are mirrors that mirror the sun and then focus all that sun on a tower a vessel in the middle of it that holds salt and the salt gets very very hot 1300 degrees c let's say and it melts with that molten salt you can store it and you can then generate steam to create uh, uh, power through a steam turbine and you can do that the same day the next day or next week so that's what we call long duration energy storage so that's new technology that's just emerging other technologies that are, em that are emerging are the company I worked for until recently, uh, Energy Dome, we have what we call a CO2 battery. That is one way of mechanically storing energy. The CO2 battery, you simply compress CO2 that you hold in the gas holder. If you compress the CO2 to 60 bar, it becomes liquid and you store it in a high pressure vessel. When you want to get your power back, you simply reverse the process. You let the CO2 out you run it through an expander turbine and back into the dome where you were holding the gas earlier and you get your power back. That technology is half the cost of lithium and it actually technically 
the, the efficiency is better than that of lithium and has a long lifetime of 20, 25 years without the waste problems. And there's a couple of other technologies like that, molten salt, gravitational, uh, where you uh, have a lump of concrete that you lift when you want to store power and you release when you want to get it back. Um, there's a company that is rusting metal to release, to generate electricity. And when you want to store electricity, then you reverse the rust. It's reverse rusting. So these are new technologies, some of which are already competitive. Uh, and they will take over from lithium and from pump storage in the next few years, let's say. Because one thing is clear, the more renewable energy you put on the grid, the more storage you need. And if you go beyond 40% renewable energy on the grid, that, stor that, that storage needs to be longer duration, not minutes, not hours. It may need to be a day or it may need to be a week or it may need to be a month or a season. So these storage technologies are exciting and that industry is growing at the moment globally at maybe 30% compounded annual growth rate. So it's a spectacular growth that we see in storage today, same as we saw it in solar 15 years ago, and same as we've seen in wind for the last 20 years. Interesting. So the new innovation is coming out with the storage space, the energy storage space, rather than generation space. Yes. So I'm really curious because you named off several different types of energy storage methods, and most of these are new to me. So what do you think is the most impactful way to use energy storage as in like easiest to implement on a global landscape and yeah. then also the efficiency of it and why do you think it's not implemented like currently in the current landscape yeah. right now yeah. no it's a very good question and and if you, if you look at california is a very good example right a little bit closer to home for you guys so california um is blessed with beautiful sunshine um Electricity is expensive from gas, and electricity needs to be transported from the uh, gas-fired power stations in California to the home, etc., etc. So you don't need very much for a solar panel on the roof to be uh, competitive with the power that you buy from the utility. So in California, what you see is that very many businesses and very many residential uh, houses have solar panels on the roof. And what then happens is that in the day when the sun shines, uh, the utilities can't sell their power. And why is that? Because all these solar panels on the roofs, they generate power enough to power the, the demand within the house and actually more than that. So they actually then feed backwards into the grid. So what you see in California is that you have a, a very large installation of um, storage technologies that can store energy for a few hours. And in fact, the, the independent system operator called Kaiso, they then say, well, you know what? We want to have more grid stability. We will create a market for companies that operate storage for up to four hours. And with the four hours, they can then store the solar energy from the day for the evening peak. But enough of that is on the system now that the system operator is today. I need much longer durations. I need eight hours. Eight hours you cannot do with lithium. You can technically do it. It's cost prohibitive. So that is actually driving the adoption, the adoption of new technologies in 
in California. So you say it isn't happening just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. It really is happening. If you look at the US, it's happening in California, number one, uh, Texas, number two, the Northeast. Um, Canada, I don't know so well, to be honest. Um, you don't have the solar resource that you have in uh, in California or in Texas. And, and I think the best pairing for these longer duration technologies is with solar. Um, wind, to generate with wind versus with solar, the cost of generation is more or less the same. But the profile of generation of wind versus solar is completely different. Solar is binary. It's day or it is night. In the night, the sun doesn't shine, period. So you have no generation. With wind, it varies. And you may have a windy day or a windy hour. They're not so windy. But the difference then with wind is you might have a week of strong wind, so good generation, followed by a week of no wind. So that puts a very different demand on the storage versus solar. And, and again, that is driving the grid operators to say, look, I want this kind of storage or I want that kind of storage. So it really is happening at a faster rate than you might realize. So the it's coming off a relatively low base, Christina, but um, it's growing extremely fast. And, you know, to make a plug for the industry, if you will, I kind of, going back to what I said earlier, um, I didn't plan my career. I ended up in renewable energy kind of by accident 20 years ago people took energy for granted today people don't anymore especially uh, with the situation in ukraine you know like where in europe people are making real choices do i eat or do i heat the house so people don't take it for granted anymore which i think is a good thing actually because you know your generation is growing up with not taking it for granted and when you use it that there is a not only economic costs, but also an environmental cost in using it. So it's a it's a terrific industry to be in. It's complex, it's big, uh, but within the industry, you can be anything you like. You can be a finance guy, you can be a lawyer, you can be an engineer, an environmentalist. It doesn't matter what you want to do. You can do it in that industry. It's a lot of fun. For sure. And it's really interesting how there has been like technology developed for generating sustainable energy. And now it's kind of, the technology for storing it is also being developed. And so it's a very exciting future where it'd be more and more sustainable energy that people can use even when it's off peak hours. So when it's like not sunny, et cetera. So that's very exciting. And at Energy Dome, you worked for longer duration energy storage technology. You worked in that field. And Energy Dome is also a startup, which I find very interesting because the sustainable energy field, usually energy, is a very um, large legislative process. So I'm curious how you managed to build a pipeline that facilitated rapid rollout in the world's leading storage market. And what were the barriers you encountered as a startup in this disruptive space? Yeah, yeah. Um, two very good questions. So on, on the first question, um, I have been fortunate in my working life that I have traveled all over the world and lived in many countries as well. Um, so I have a pretty good global network. Um, the global network really very much a function of my 15 years at General Electric. Um, you know, it goes from China to Argentina via Saudi and, and Iceland for argument's sake. Uh, 
and so when you say how do you then how do you then deploy new technology the industry globally is facing a challenge you know the lowest cost energy is wind and is solar but we can't store it economically so if you have a widget that says actually we got something that allows you to do this economically then you go back to the network that you have built over your working life and say look we got something that ought to be of interest to you and what i found is that there was huge appetite for the product that we happen to have it is absolutely brilliant in its simplicity its durability and its reliability um so yes there is a lot of demand then when you say what is the challenge in the industry i mentioned earlier that the small project is 20 or 40 million the big project is 200 or 2 million to a billion uh, nobody takes these decisions overnight and they say hey look Rembrandt you're a nice guy show me and then I say well you can come and have a look at the uh, demonstration facility that we have up and running in Sardinia they say that's really good and I'll come and I'm really then they come and they're really impressed and then they say what operating experience does the plant have and they said we only commissioned it last month and then they say well I want to have operational data for one or two years so it is a creative industry, but at the same time, it's very conservative because, um, you know, even one CO2 battery, you know, I, I'm not telling you anything that's confidential here, but one product, one single unit, you're talking the order of 40 or $50 million. So these are big investment decisions and people don't take them very quickly. So the challenge that you have as a startup is to, have the staying power to number one you need to have a very good value proposition which we have but then you need to have the staying power <clears throat> to stay with these companies with huge balance sheets and huge decades of experience to say yeah we will work with you and i'll i'll demonstrate the product to you over a two-year period will you order it for me then you know that's and in 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 many startups right they call this the valley of death you know that you're nearly commercial um but not quite mm -hmm. in the case of energy dome thankfully we don't suffer that problem because uh, the product has been demonstrated that simple technology that people understand there is no valley of death there the question is simply how quickly do we take off and take flight for sure and that's very interesting in the sense that like startups are known for their innovative ideas. However, it's really hard to implement like startups into long scale roadmaps of companies that need to like kind of use them. So you're right, it takes like a, a lot of financial decision for them to like take on using your product. And so I think it's an interesting problem to solve how we can have more innovation in terms of startups in the energy spectrum, because it takes such like a large, like, I guess risk for a company to like implement it to their like large yeah. scale roadmap. Yeah, yeah thank you. To, to expand on that a little bit, right? There is uh, quite a few initiatives from many government and non-government organizations to um, and accelerate development of new technology by startups. 
uh, one of which is Bloomberg, as in Michael Bloomberg, uh, from um, the, the, the philanthropist and former mayor of New York. He's got something called Bloomberg New Energy Finance. It's a, it's a data platform. But they have a competition out annually where they say which technologies will do the, the most to take CO2 out of the atmosphere. And uh, I'm only mentioning them because we happen to participate. We happen to win that competition. But it is very many uh, organizations like that. There's a lot of government money that goes behind it. Because you know what? Not everybody's a winner, right? For every project or technology that succeeds, it's 99 failures. But as a society, you need to fund all 100 because you don't know which one will succeed. And there is plenty of money available for it, but you just, not for dreamers, it's got to be real. So, and it is, like you said, the industry in in one way is conservative, which it has to be because they're playing with the, the numbers are so big that the money that they play with on the whole is money that comes from institutional investors, i.e. pension funds. So it is their job to be conservative and it can be a bit frustrating at times, but it's just the way it is. For sure. And thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Uh, we would love to get like three action items for you to end off this episode. So anything you would like to share to our listeners? Coming from the energy sector, I think the lowest hanging fruit is be wise with the use of energy. It's all too easy to go um, downstairs to have dinner and leave all the lights on upstairs. That's the simplest way of reducing CO2. Be wise with the use of energy. Then from a career perspective uh, or a <laughs> working life perspective, decide what you want to be and just go for it, you know, because you're going to have to believe in yourself. And if you're good at something, you'll succeed. And if you enjoy what you do, you'll be good at it. There's no question. Um, that's number That's number two. Um, number three, um, like I said, I enjoy the outdoors. I think I get a huge um, amount of energy just from spending time outdoors, you know, whether it's in the garden or walking the dog or hiking or sailing or diving or flying, the outdoors gives you energy um, and puts what we do most of our time indoors in perspective. I don't know, Christina, whether these are action points, but if you ask me off the cuff three things that i have to say they, these are the three these are great action items so thank you so much again for being here i learned a lot from this conversation so really appreciate it no pleasure and if you have any questions or if anybody else has any questions you know where to find me